Amen. 1 Kings chapter 22 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 22. One of the things that God teaches us in His Word is that worship of Him cannot be something that is rushed or put on a time limit. And too often, even in our churches today, and letting, instead of allowing the Spirit of God to lead us in worship, we set aside a certain amount of time and say, okay, God, that's our worship time. Now we're on to something else. And that leaves very little room for the Spirit of God to lead and to move. And though we always want to be a church of order because God is a God of order, we also always want to be a church where we allow the Spirit of God to lead and direct and not put God in our box and say, God, you've got to fit this mold. So I hope all of us will be open to that as far as worship goes. 1 Kings 22. We're in the midst of this series, in the last few chapters of 1 Kings and the first couple of chapters of 2 Kings, on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. And just like a couple weeks ago, the passage actually that we're looking at today doesn't have Elijah in it, but it certainly is what is happening around the times of Elijah and his ministry on earth. And it reminds us again that God doesn't just work through one person, that God works through multiple people. And though Elijah at one time was taking on way too much on his own, this passage also reminds us that God is working through other prophets and other people at the time, not just Elijah. There's so much in this portion of scripture we're going to look at this morning that I hope that you'll go back and just sort of meditate on it, read it, study it, soak it up, because I'm only going to be able to bring out just little bits of all the good stuff that's contained in this passage of Scripture this morning. But I want to begin just by reading these first couple of verses of 1 Kings 22. And as we read this, let's be reminded that we ended chapter 21 seeing King Ahab sort of humbling himself before God. And we asked the question at the end of the service last week, is this going to be a, a position before God that is sustained, that is lasting, or is this going to be something that is short-lived? And what we're going to see today is it was something very short-lived. Which reminds us that we've got to be careful. That when we make decisions and commitments and and all of that, that it's not just an emotional reaction. That it's not just getting caught up in the moment and and saying, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this or that or this is going to change or that's going to change. And maybe it does for a short amount of time, but it doesn't last. Because what God wants to do in all of our lives is something that lasts something that is eternal, something that sticks, not something that where we just sort of get with it for a few weeks or a few months and then we revert right back to the way we were. And that's where we're going to see Ahab today. He is right back to where he was before he humbled himself before God. So we read in 1 Kings 22, 
There was no war between Syria and Israel for three years. And in the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah came down to visit the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his servants, Surely you recognize that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, though we are hesitant to reclaim it from the king of Syria. Then he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to attack Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I will support you. My army and my horses are at your disposal. Couple things. First of all, we need to be sure that the battles that we enter into in life are the battles that God wants us to enter into. We've talked about that before in this series. Here's these kings getting ready to attack Syria. And like we see throughout the word of God, listen, if this is something that God wants us to be a part of, then the Bible says the battle is the Lord's. And just like with a great example of David, young shepherd boy facing the giant Goliath, if God is in it, he'll fight our battles for us and we will be victorious. But we need to make sure it's a battle that God wants us to be involved with because we also have many examples from the word of God of those who entered into a battle, those who entered into a fight that God did not want them to be a part of. And when that happens, they suffer defeat. So one of the lessons we learn is, are we fighting a battle that God wants us to fight? And then, are we fighting it with somebody that God wants us to fight with? Are we allying ourselves with the right side, if you will. And that's what we're seeing here. See, King Jehoshaphat of Judah should have never allied himself with King Ahab of Israel. He should have never said, I will support you. We don't have time again this morning to take a look at it, but if you go over sometime and look at 2 Chronicles chapter 19, the first couple of verses, God sends the prophet Jehu to Jehoshaphat, after all that happens in chapter 22 of 1 Kings takes place, and he basically confronts King Jehoshaphat and says, God is not pleased with you that you were willing to ally yourself and support a king that was really against God. So, again, we also have to go, are we supporting the wrong side? Are we allying ourselves with those who are actually opposed to God and to the cause of Christ? And in this case, that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. See, for three years, Ahab reverted back to his old ways. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, should have seen, this is not a guy that I want to get hooked up with. This is not a guy that I want to go to battle with. Because he is totally out of the will of God. He is not on God's side. He is promoting false worship in Israel. And it will not go well for me if I hook up and support him. That God's lack of support of him is going to fall on me as well. So again, learning some lessons here. Are we fighting the battles God wants us to fight? And then if we do choose to go into a fight, to go into a battle, are we going in with the right people? For instance, if you were to fight a battle, not a literal physical battle necessarily, but you were to have a battle in your life 
something that you needed to stand up for, to stand against, whatever, who would you choose to go to war with, with you? Who would you choose to fight with? I got to say, I, I am so fortunate for all of you, and especially for those that God has brought in around me, the other leaders here at the Oasis, because there's no group of people that I would rather go to battle with than the leadership of this church and the people that God has brought around me. I feel very blessed and very fortunate to have you all in my life. But see, Jehoshaphat wasn't doing that. He was getting hooked up and getting ready to go into battle with somebody that was not a wise spiritual choice. And God was going to show him that that was not the way to go. Now, I will give, obviously, Jehoshaphat his due... And at least he gets to the point before he gets ready to go into battle with King Ahab. Notice what he says. He says, I will support you. My army and my horses are at your disposal. But then Jehoshaphat added, uh, first, let's seek an oracle or a word from the Lord. Well, there you go. Shouldn't we ask God if this is God's will? Shouldn't we make sure before we go to battle... That this is of the Lord? Well, yeah. But wouldn't it have been better to do that before you tell Ahab you're going to support him? And that now your army and your horses are his? Wouldn't it have been the other way? Shouldn't we have made sure, again, that this was a battle? That God wanted us to even get involved in at all? Before we start telling people, we're going to support you in this? We need to make sure, as followers of God, that everything we do is what God and His Spirit is leading us to do. That we're not doing this on our own. That this isn't what we're cooking up. That this is what God is leading us to do. There is something so freeing, so encouraging even if it's something hard to know that God has led me to do this and he's going to be in this with me. And so Jehoshaphat does say, hey, we we first should seek a word from the Lord. So notice, verse 6, the king of Israel assembled about 400 prophets and asked them, should I attack Ramoth Gilead or not? Now we're going to learn throughout this passage. If we don't get to it, I'll just say it here. These were false prophets. These were not prophets of God. These were basically yes men that Ahab had assembled around him who were going to tell him what he wanted to hear at all times, not what he needed to hear. So he uh, assembles these and he says, should we attack Ramoth Gilead or not? And they say, Attack, literally, go up. Notice, verse 6, the sovereign one, the Lord of lords, will hand it over to the king. Wow. All these 400 prophets tell King Ahab, yep, you go, king. You go to battle against Syria. Because the sovereign one, he will hand it over to you. Can I just remind all of us? Before we start telling other people what God is saying 
and what God's will is, we better make sure that's what God says and what God's will is. Because that really wasn't God's will. And it reminds us that there are a lot of false prophets and pastors and ministers and evangelists out there today who claim to be prophets or spokespeople for God who are telling telling God's people, this is what God says. And it's not really what God says. And the reason why we know it's not what God says is because it contradicts the word of God. And what God is revealing and what God is saying will never contradict his word. He's always true to his word. He's always consistent with his word. In fact, notice, even King Jehoshaphat of Judah, who's again not in the best spiritual place. He's better than Ahab. But he's not in the best spiritual place because he would have never agreed to hook up with Ahab to go against Syria at this point. But notice even Jehoshaphat then asks in verse 7, is there not a prophet of the Lord still here? In other words, here's all these 400 prophets whom Ahab has assembled and they're all saying to King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab, yeah, you go against Syria. God's going to give them into your hand. And Jehoshaphat's sitting there going, nah, I, I want to hear from a prophet of God. In other words, he even has enough discernment, even being not in the best place right now spiritually, where he even recognizes the difference between a true prophet of God and a real prophet of God. Again, it reminds us, we've got to have that kind of discernment in the day and age in which we live, because there's so many people out there claiming to be speaking for God. Think about this too. Notice what he says. Is there still not one person in all of Israel who still speaks for God? Wow, that's pretty sad. But see, that's what God predicted. And that was part of his judgment on his people when they turned their backs on him and started to worship idols. God said through the prophet Amos, I'm getting ready to send a famine in the land of Israel. And it's not a famine of food and water. It is a famine of hearing the word of God. In other words, God says, because I know your heart and I know you're really not interested, nor are you in a place where you are willing to regard what I say, I'm going to dry up the word of God. Until I see that my people are interested in truly hearing and regarding what I've got to say. Then I will begin to send more spokespeople or prophets from me to my people. Can I say from my perspective? I think that's part of where we are even in our country today. It's very hard to find people who truly are just teaching and preaching the Word of God anymore. It's hard to find. Why is it hard to find? It's hard to find because it is a consequence of people who may say with their lips, Oh God, I really want to know your will. I want to know your Word. But God knows. Now they really don't. Because when I tell them what I think... They just go and do what they want to do anyway, which is what we're going to see happen here. So again, it reminds us, 
Do we truly want to know what God says? And let's not take for granted that we still at least have the Word of God and have people who are willing to teach and preach the Word of God because it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, even within our own country. And so, the king of Israel answers Jehoshaphat and says, there is still one man through whom we can seek the Lord's will. Wow. Wow. Think about that. Israel, the the nation of God's people, God's chosen people. And the king of Israel's response to King Jehoshaphat of Judah is, well, there's still one guy that we can seek the Lord's will from. Now, again, obviously, Elijah for whatever reason, is not on Ahab's radar at this point. But here's what he says. He says, there's a guy by the name of Micaiah. And he says, but I despise him. Literally, I hate him because he does not prophesy prosperity for me. In other words... He doesn't tell me what I want to hear. He doesn't tell me things that please me. He doesn't tell me things that are agreeable to me. Therefore, I hate him. I know he speaks God's will. But I don't want him around. That shows, again, the spiritual condition of Ahab. And how short-lived... Him being in a good place with God and humbling himself lasted. It didn't last very long. Because now he's holding God and God's word, represented by God's prophets, far away from him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, when you and I are in a good place spiritually, we will crave the word of God, even if it hurts. Even if it convicts. Even if it challenges us. That we will desire to hear the word of God. Because we're in such a good place that we know it's for our own good. And we know it's best for us. And we know that's how we're going to grow. And how God's going to stretch us. And how God's going to change us. Because that's what God's all about. But when we're not in a good place. Then we run from God's word. Because we don't want to be convicted. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to be stretched. We don't want to be changed. We want to live life the way we want to live. We want to make our own choices. And we don't want God and his word to interfere with that. So he literally is hating the prophet of God. Because he speaks the truth of God. But he knows who he is. So finally... Jehoshaphat says, well, the king of Israel should not say such things, verse 8. Wow, and that's true. You should be leading people to the word of God rather than away from God's word and God's people. So the king of Israel, I think, probably thought, well, if I want this Jehoshaphat on my side and I want him to fight this battle with me, I need to appease him. I'll call Micaiah. And we'll bring him in and see what he says. So the king of Israel, verse 9, summoned an official and said, Quickly bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, and let's see what he says. Now I'm going to 
take now a little bit of a jump through this next passage because we don't have time to go through it verse by verse today. But basically what happens is they get Micaiah and they bring him in, you know, and, and all of the king's advisors are saying to Micaiah, putting pressure on him. Now, you know that all 400 of his prophets have said that you're going to be successful. So you need to agree with them. You need to be on board. First of all, can I say it at this point? You have 400 people agree on anything. Look out. Seriously, there, there, there's, that, should be a, that should be a warning sign right there. When all 400 are agree, in agreement about something. And Micaiah actually answers them and says, Oh, I, I think you should go up. When he finally gets before the king, king says, Okay, come on, Micaiah, give me your best shot. Tell me what you're going to tell me. And Micaiah says, Oh, king, go up. You'll win. And then the king, of, king Ahab of Israel, he gets really upset. He says, haven't I told you before that when I bring you in, when I want to bring you in, I want you to tell me the truth? I don't know exactly why Micaiah answered the king the first time the way he did. Maybe it was because he knew through God or whatever, or just knew from experience, this king really isn't interested in what God has to say. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell him what he wants to hear rather than what he needs to hear. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But the Bible does tell us when the king presses Micaiah to prophesy exactly what God thinks, that Micaiah basically says, well, you shouldn't go. In fact, look at verse 16. I'll pick it up there. Where the king said to him, How many times must I make you solemnly promise that you need to tell me only the truth? So in verse 17, here's what Micaiah says. I saw all Israel scattered, dispersed on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. That's an important word. The word shepherd here means to feed, to give pasture to, to give grazing land to. In other words, what Micaiah and what God is really indicting, one of the things they're indicting the king of Israel for is that you're not feeding the people of God with God's word. They have no shepherd. They have no leader who's leading them to God's word. And then he says... The Lord also said, they have no master. That word in the Hebrew speaks of a strong leader. They've got a king. They've got a leader. But from God's perspective, he's not a strong leader. He's a weak leader. And so the Lord says through Micaiah, they should go home in peace. Verse 17. Very important. That's what the Lord says. That's what the Lord thinks. The Lord's position is Israel is too weak to go against Syria. Disaster will happen because Israel has been weakened from within through their abandonment of their worship of God and their worship of idols. And they are in no position spiritually, physically, or otherwise to go into battle at this point. They might as well just go home and peace and not fight this battle. That's what God thinks. 
So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he does not prophesy prosperity for me, but disaster? And Micaiah says this, notice this, really important. I think verse 19 could be the key of it all. He said, I want you both kings to hear the word of the Lord. And notice what he says next. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the heavenly assembly standing on his right and on his left. Can I tell you? That's worship. You want to know what worship is? Worship is seeing the God behind it all. That's what worship is. Whatever you're talking about, worship is putting God in his rightful place. It is seeing the God behind it. It is seeing who God really is at all times in life. And even though Micaiah was a prophet of God and his primary ministry was to speak the word of God, he did it all out of seeing God In his proper place, God was on his throne and all the heavenly assembly were standing at attention on the right hand of God and on the left hand of God. That's where God was. And folks, that's where God needs to be in our lives. That's where God needs to remain in our lives. Always seeing him through it all, sitting on his throne, the king of kings and Lord of lords. On his throne, in control, the sovereign Lord of the universe. It is when we get our eyes off of him in that position, in that place, that things begin to go bad for us. Think about Peter. An illustration of this in the New Testament, when Peter was literally walking on water as a human being. The Bible clearly tells us that as long as Peter was keeping his eyes on Jesus... Seeing him and not paying attention to the winds and the waves around him, that he was able to do the impossible and walk on water. But as soon as he got his eyes off of who God was, he began to sink. That's why, again, I shared that worship is really the discipline of learning to see the God behind everything. No matter what we do in worship, whether it's singing, Praying, studying and reading the word of God, serving, whatever it is. It's always seeing the God behind it all. Think about the Old Testament saints. One of their ways of worshiping God, and this was God's will, was to offer bloody sacrifices. How easy it would have been for an Israelite to get focused on the knife, on all the blood flying and splattering all over the place and on the shrieking of a dying animal rather than seeing the God behind the sacrifice. And that's why if worshipers in the Old Testament were to be genuine, true worshipers of God, they had to learn to focus beyond what they were experiencing and not get caught up in that and see the God behind it all. Folks, that's a challenge for you and I today, maybe in a little bit different way. Because as Christians, we can get so easily focused and our focus can become focused on the style and the forms and the methodology of worship. So much so that we are 
focusing on that rather than learning to see the God behind it all. Micaiah saw the Lord. And it was out of that worship of God and vision of God that he lived his life. Obviously, King Ahab and at this point, King Jehoshaphat, they weren't seeing God in that way. And because of that, they were about to disregard what the prophet of God said. And they were about to go into battle regardless of what God said. In fact, in this very interesting passage here, again, I'm not going to take time to deal with it this morning. The Bible teaches us that God basically sends a delusion to King Ahab through the 400 false prophets. A deception. And many people look at that and go, wow, God, God in a sense, sent a deceiving spirit to Ahab to deceive him? That seems unlike God. That seems out of character for God. But again, when we come to something, let's remember to compare Scripture with Scripture before we come to a final perspective on something in the Bible. And what the Bible clearly teaches is this. God is not a God of deception. What God is simply doing here is it's the natural result of someone who's not willing to open themselves up to the truth and embrace the truth. It's exactly what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians when he talks about the climate of the Antichrist. He says, because people didn't want to embrace the truth of God, that God sent a strong delusion into the world through the Antichrist and false prophet who were doing signs and wonders and miracles and leading people away. Well, the reason they were leading people away is because they simply didn't care what God thought, first of all. See? And in other words, what God's Word teaches is, if you and I aren't willing to embrace the truth of God, then we automatically open up ourselves to deception. Because there will always, and in a sense, what God is doing is he's giving people exactly what they really want. Because think about it. If a person really doesn't want to hear what God says, if a person really doesn't want to hear what God thinks, which is the truth, then automatically, what are they going to believe? A lie. I mean, it's either the truth or it's a lie. And so what happens in this passage is the Bible just says because Jehoshaphat nor Ahab really were interested in hearing the truth and following the truth, here comes the lie through the 400 false prophets. Now again, even in his mercy though, God did send a true prophet to these kings. Even though 400 false prophets said, oh yeah, go, that's God's will, you'll, you'll win. There was Micaiah, that lone voice in the midst of all that false prophecy that said, well, you really should just go home in peace. Because if you go, you will suffer defeat. So notice what happens. I'm going all the way over to verse 29. Very sad. The Bible says the king of Israel, the king of Israel, and King Jehoshaphat of Judah attacked Ramoth-Gilead. 
think about what that verse is saying. It's saying that in spite of their knowledge that God's word and God's will said you shouldn't go, what do they do? They do what they want to do. They do what they want to do even though they know that God has clearly said through his prophet they shouldn't go. Now we might look at that and go, oh man. And yet, don't we... Don't we sometimes do the same thing? We know what God's word says about certain things. We know what God's will is concerning certain things. And yet there are times in our life, supposedly as God's people, that we basically say to God, God, I'm still going to do what I want to do. And somehow I'm hoping that it turns out okay. Even though I know This is what your will is. Even though this is what your word is, I still want to do what I want to do. And somehow I'm going to justify it. Somehow I'm going to excuse it some way. So the two kings go to battle. Now again, I'm going to wrap this up in just a moment. This next passage is incredible. I'll just summarize it this way. King Jehoshaphat either is the most naive man I've ever heard of, or he is a guy who, like some of us sometimes in our life, is so intimidated by another individual and so uh, impressed by another individual that no matter what this other individual says, you just sort of cave into it, even though you know it's not a good idea. So here's what happens at this point. King Jehoshaphat... Or King Ahab says to King Jehoshaphat, now I got a plan, King. Thanks, by the way, for coming to battle with me, but I got a plan. I'm going to go in disguise to battle. I'm not even going to look like a king. I'm not going to wear my kingly garments. I'm not going to ride my kingly horse. I'm going in undercover. But you, King Jehoshaphat, oh man, you go in in all your kingly regalia and you go in on your horse. Be all right, right, King? And Jehoshaphat goes... Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Really? Really? Like I said, he's either the most naive guy I've ever heard of, or, or King Ahab is one of those people, like sometimes we have in our lives, that no matter what they say, even though we know it's not a good idea, we go along with it. Think about it. By King Jehoshaphat hooking up with King Ahab, it's almost going to cost him his life. That, that shows the consequences of hooking up with the wrong people in our lives, especially going to battle with them. But here's where we see the sovereignty of God. No matter what Ahab tries to do to somehow manipulate the situation and somehow think he's still in control, and things are going to still turn out okay, and even though God prophesied that somehow he's going to die in battle, and it's not going to be good no matter how he tries to turn it, God is still on his throne. And God is the one that has the last word, and God's the one that's going to define how this all ends. Because he's God. And men are not... Even kings, even leaders have nothing on the king of kings and lord of lords. And so what ends up happening, the Bible says, is they go into battle. And the king of Syria says this. He says to all his soldiers, listen, 
I don't even want you to fight the common soldiers of Israel. I could care less about the common soldiers of Israel. I'm not in this to to kill the common soldiers of Israel. I just want King Ahab. That's all I want. Target him. So that when they go into battle, the only king that they see is King Jehoshaphat. And they start firing their arrows at him. And the Bible says that King Jehoshaphat's like, whoa, he calls out to God, God help. And miraculously, God intervenes. And they realize that they're firing on King Jehoshaphat of Judah rather than King Ahab of Israel. And they stop. And then notice what happens down in verse 24. This verse reminds us that there are no coincidences. There are no accidents with the God of the Bible. Now an archer just happened to shoot an arrow into the air randomly. Well, again, nothing happens that way. And guess who it struck? It struck Ahab. See, what this passage also teaches us is you can't run from God. And you and I can't disregard God's word and God's will and get away with it. We think we can. The world thinks they can. But they really can't. We end up paying heavy consequences and prices in our lives when we basically blow off God and His Word and say, God, I'm going to live my way. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't really care what Your Word says. I don't care what the teachers of the Word say. I don't care what Your will and what Your Spirit is teaching me. I'm still going to do what I want to do. And that arrow, in spite of the disguise, found King Ahab. And basically the Bible tells us that it was because of that injury that King Ahab died. In fact, notice verse 37. The Bible says, so the king died and was taken to Samaria where they buried him. They washed off the chariot at the pool of Samaria. This was where the prostitutes bathed and dogs licked his blood. Notice, very important, just as the Lord said it would happen. God's word. God's word. This chapter for us, by the way, the rest of the chapter is just sort of reminding us what happened next as far as just the king's reign go. Nothing necessarily significant. That's why we're going to get into 2 Kings for a couple weeks next week. But 1 Kings 22 for us, folks, is a cautionary tale. Because it reminds us about some really important things. Like... Do we really want to know what God's Word says? Do we really care? Do we really want to know what God thinks? Or even when we hear what God thinks and what God says, do we do our own thing anyway? Somehow thinking that it's going to turn out okay in the end. And somehow that we're in control, whether than the Lord being in control. If there's one verse, folks, one verse out of this whole chapter that I think you and I should meditate on 
and focus on, it's back to that verse 19 of 1 Kings 22. Where Micaiah, the prophet of God, said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the heavenly assembly standing on his right and on his left. Folks, if you and I could get to a place in our lives where as followers of God, we became worshipers of God. And where our worship of God brought us to a discipline and to a place in our life where every day and every hour of the day and every minute of the day, we were living out of the context of seeing the Lord sitting on His throne, high and lifted up like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. It would go better for us. It's when we bring the Lord down off of His throne where we try to fit the Lord into our little box, where we stop worshiping and seeing Him and seeing the God behind it all, that things begin to go bad for us. We saw it here with the King of Judah and the King of Israel who failed to maintain a proper view and vision of God in their life. And the same thing is true thousands of years later for us. That the single greatest driving force and truth in our lives that will keep us on the right path is when our worship of God is current and fresh. And where every day we are living out of the context of seeing the Lord seated seated on His throne. May we today And in this coming week, and throughout the rest of this year, and on into the beginning of next year, live our lives every minute from the context of the Lord seated on His throne. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are a God that is high and lifted up. You are a God above it all. You are a God who's in control, whose word is true, whose will will be done on earth as it is in heaven one day. One day the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And you, Jesus, will reign forever and ever. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every human being will either bow their knee to Jesus willingly or bow their knee being forced to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God may we here today become true worshipers of you who every day acknowledge your greatness and your goodness, who see you for who you are, who see you behind it all, who do not get caught up in minor things, but continue to focus on what's really important. 
And most of all, God, just like the prophet Micaiah, help us to always live out of the context and see you in the context of seated on your throne, high and lifted up, with all the heavenly assemblies standing at attention on the right hand and on the left. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.